This is the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Presentations and discussions with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Michael Girard of Columbia Law School on U.S. and international climate policy after Copenhagen. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Michael B. Gerard is Andrew Sabin Professor of Professional Practice and teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy law, and is director of the Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. From 1979 through 2008, he practiced environmental law in New York, most recently as managing partner of the New York office of Arnold and Porter. Upon joining the Columbia Law faculty, he became senior counsel to the firm. His practice involved trying numerous cases, handling the environmental aspects of many transactions and development projects, and providing regulatory compliance advice to clients in the private and public sectors. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. My pleasure. Talk a little bit about the 2009 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or the, the Copenhagen Summit, held last December, and in particular, a little about international climate change negotiations, uh, including the 15th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Right. Back in 1992, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was negotiated in Rio. It was uh, supported by President George H.W. Bush and ratified overwhelmingly by the U.S. Senate. Uh, It was not self-implementing, however. It set up the objective of avoiding dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, and it set up some procedures, but the details on how to achieve that objective were left to a later day, and in particular to annual conferences of the parties, which were to be held every year. A lot of back and forth uh, happened, and in 1997, the annual conference of the parties took place in Kyoto, Japan. Uh, In the run-up to the Kyoto conference, there was a good deal of concern in the United States that the U.S. was about to sign on to an agreement that would obligate the uh, U.S. to reduce its emissions, but would not impose similar obligations on the rapidly developing countries like China and India. So the U.S. Senate, by a vote of 95 to 0, passed a resolution saying the U.S. should not ratify anything that... uh, impose these obligations on the U.S., but not these other countries. At Kyoto, Vice President Gore was uh, the head of the delegation, and and the Kyoto Protocol that emerged uh, did, in fact, obligate the U.S. and the other major developed countries to reduce their emissions, but not China and India. So that became very unpopular with the, the Senate, and President Clinton never sent the Kyoto Protocol to the Senate to be ratified because he knew he didn't have the votes. When President George W. Bush took office in 2001, he explicitly disowned the Kyoto Protocol, and a lot of people thought that was the end of it, that it wouldn't go into force. But in 2005, it was ratified by Russia, and the Kyoto Protocol went into force uh, for those countries that had ratified it, not including the U.S. We're now at the stage where the U.S. is the only major developed country in the world that has not ratified the Kyoto Protocol. And what was the idea behind the protocol? The Kyoto Protocol provides for a number of mechanisms to reduce emissions. Um, 
including the uh, uh, international emissions trading system and something called the clean development mechanism, which is designed to have Western money, uh, have, have the rich countries pay for certain projects in the poor countries. But it basically expires in 2012. The, the principal commitments in the Kyoto Protocol expire in 2012. So everybody knew that something had to be done toward an extension. And at the annual conference of the parties in 2008 in Bali, Indonesia, a roadmap was set up for negotiations that would, they, it was hoped, culminate in the 2009 conference of the parties in Copenhagen, Denmark. So the whole thrust for the subsequent two years was to try to come up with a grand master agreement in Copenhagen that would carry forth in Kyoto that would hopefully have the U.S. support. President Obama, after his election, made clear that, as he had done during the campaign, that he wanted the U.S. to sign onto some international agreement, and he wanted the U.S. Congress to adopt legislation. But that's not what happened. We we never we didn't have that legislation going into Copenhagen. And there was no treaty at the conclusion of Copenhagen, although there was some agreement, correct? Right. The la very last day of the two-week conference in December, it looked like everything was falling apart. But uh, President Obama managed to assemble a, a meeting of uh, the leaders of the largest countries in the world. It got together, and after several hours, they laboriously worked out a three-page document called the Copenhagen Accord, which is a political agreement, not a legally binding agreement. Uh, and under the Copenhagen Accord, there's an objective of preventing global average temperatures from getting above two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, and the countries are going to work together to come up with uh, with a new plan for reducing their emissions and for providing financial assistance to the poor countries to help them mitigate their emissions and to adapt to climate change. But uh, it, there's nothing legally binding about it. It's a far cry from a treaty. Yeah. Well, while there was no treaty, what do you see as the conference's biggest success? It brought to the, the first place, it brought to the same place at the same time uh, about 120 heads of state or heads of government, the largest collection of such folks uh, at any time other than at United Nations General Assembly meetings in New York. And so it really caught the world's attention. And importantly, China and India and Brazil, together with South Africa, got together and as sort of the most rapidly developing not yet rich countries, and they did agree to take uh, certain actions to deal with climate change. China overtook the U.S. as the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter two or three years ago, and for the first time, they made certain commitments. Now, they did not uh, agree to reduce their uh, absolute level of emissions, but they did agree to improve their emissions intensity, which means that they will pollute less per unit of, of economic development. Uh, and uh, so they, they came to the table in a certain way, as did India and Brazil and, and South Africa. So I think we, we saw progress on that front. We also saw progress on coming up with an international agreement on reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation of forests, which was another very important issue. So where President Obama said we made some progress, but there's still a long way to go. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes. I mean, I think Copenhagen was universally regarded as a disappointment. The question is whether it was a catastrophe or just a sort of mild disappointment. And, 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 and I'm, I'm closer to the disappointment end than the catastrophe end, but uh, there's a huge amount uh, ahead of us. Um, clearly, it would, it would 
not helped that the U.S. hadn't passed legislation at the time. I want to get more into that in just a moment or so, but what do you think are the next steps for upcoming international negotiations? The Copenhagen conference was also regarded as a disappointment for the additional reason that it was somewhat chaotic and raucous, and and the group was still governing itself by a rule that unanimity was needed for any uh, significant decisions. They did not get unanimity. Um, uh, for 190 countries, it's hard to get them all to agree on anything. And there's a general sense that the UN process is too unwieldy for making the important decisions that had to be made. So I think we're going to continue to have these annual conferences of parties. The next one will be in December of 2010 in Cancun, Mexico. But I think the the real action, the more important action, is going to be taking place in negotiations of smaller groups of countries. There are, under the G8 and major economies forum and various other assemblages, meetings going on almost all the time around the world of, of major countries to try to come up with it, not you know global agreements, but uh, multilateral agreements that I think will be an important focus for activity. What do you think are the biggest issues for the parties to tackle at the next conference of the parties in Mexico? Well, there's going to be the issue of what kind of emissions reductions will the different countries uh, try to achieve. The emissions reductions that were discussed in in Copenhagen are not nearly strong enough to help out some of the small island states and uh, certain countries like Bangladesh that are extremely vulnerable to sea rise and other effects of climate change. There's going to be uh, there are going to be major issues about how legally enforceable are any of the emissions reductions commitments that are made, and overlying everything is the question of uh, who's going to pay for it, and in particular, how much money are the rich countries going to provide to the poor countries to help them adapt to climate change and, and reduce their own emissions and engage in sustainable development. Where's the money going to come from? How is it going to be allocated? What kind of monitoring will there be of how the money is spent? All of those were important issues in Copenhagen. None of them achieved uh, ultimate resolution in Copenhagen, and so those are going to come back to the table in a big way in Cancun. No legislation enacted by Congress as of yet, but what have agencies been doing to address climate change to this point? Obama, during the campaign, said he would use the Uh, administrative power of the federal government under existing statutes to go forward on climate change uh, until there's legislation, and he has been doing exactly that. Um, uh, On January 1 of 2010, uh, the greenhouse gas monitoring rule took effect. That's an EPA regulation that requires uh, more than 10,000 businesses and other facilities around the country to begin monitoring their greenhouse gases for the first time, and they're going to have to file public reports about that in March of 2011. EPA has also promulgated what's called the CARS rule, which is a, a regulation that sets fuel economy standards and carbon dioxide emission standards for passenger vehicles and, and light trucks, um, um, That a, an, a uniform national standard that is actually a little stronger than the strong California standards we had. So that that has been uh, promulgated. EPA is getting ready to promulgate something called the tailoring rule, which is a rule that concerns the levels of greenhouse gas emissions from a stationary source like a power plant that will trigger a, um, a requirement to get a, a federal permit under the Clean Air Act. 
So all that is under the Clean Air Act. In addition, the U.S. Council on Environmental Quality, which is part of the Executive Office of the President, promulgated draft guidelines on consideration of climate issues under the National Environmental Policy Act, the federal statute that requires environmental impact statements. Also, the Securities and Exchange Commission has come out with guidance on how climate issues should be disclosed by registered public companies in securities filings. Uh, so there's been a lot going on at the agency level under existing law. Well, what are your thoughts on when uh, a climate change law might be enacted? Well, that's a that's a very difficult question. In in June of 2009, the, the House uh, narrowly passed the Waxman-Markey bill, which is a comprehensive economy-wide cap-and-trade bill. It went over to the Senate, and uh, the deliberations of the Senate were headed by Senator Barbara Boxer of California, Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, and they put forth a bill, but it didn't get a, didn't get a whole lot of traction. Uh, it, it, at least it was nowhere near the 60 votes that you need these days to get anything through the Senate. The latest thing that has been happening is that Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, has stuck his neck out, really, and said that uh, it might make sense to have a, uh, a climate bill if certain other things happen. If, and in particular, he said he wanted the U.S. to proceed with offshore drilling for oil and gas and with a vigorous program of nuclear power. And in fact, President Obama has announced going forward with uh, a resumption of offshore oil and gas drilling in certain off certain coastlines and is promoting the use of nuclear power. So it is widely thought that that is a part of a hope-for deal where we would have a statute passed by Congress. The, the latest discussion is that this would probably be a cap-and-trade law, but would, far from covering the entire economy all at once, would begin by just regulating the electric utility sector and then might later be expanded to regulate other sectors. So I have not given up on the prospect of legislation in 2010. There's still a lot of work being done to try to get there. It's generally thought that time is short. We have the mid-year elections coming up. A lot of people think that in those elections, the Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate will shrink, making it harder yet to get anything through. So the next couple of months are really going to tell the tale. Do you think that the work that the various agencies are doing that you spoke about and explained a, a couple of minutes ago will have any effect on Congress? Will, will that exert any pressure? Well, part of the problem is that, yes, it's exerting pressure and Congress is fighting back. Uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski, who's a Republican from Alaska, uh, has been talking about legislation that would essentially annul some of the actions that EPA is, is trying to take. It does not look like she has the votes, and it would have to be passed by the House and signed by the president anyway, so that's probably not going to happen. But it has exerted pressure on, on EPA to uh, try to back off. Uh, so there's this little dance going on between EPA and Congress that uh, EPA is using its existing authority, and, but it realizes that if it goes too far with that authority, Congress may uh, chop them off at the knees. That's interesting. Pressure, good and bad, back and forth. Yes, it's going. It's going in both directions, and 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 partly as a result of that pressure, EPA has said it's probably going to further increase the threshold for requiring permits. In other words, only larger facilities will require permits from the uh, the Clean Air Act. EPA does not want to be regulating mom and pop stores, so it's trying very hard to avoid that requirement. 
You know, there's been some litigation over a lot of these issues. Do you expect to see more of that? There's been a lot of litigation already, and I see more coming. Um, the litigation has played a very important role, most importantly. In 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Massachusetts versus EPA, which some people think is the most important environmental decision ever issued. But it said that EPA does have the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the uh, Clean Air Act, and, and it's using that authority that, that EPA has been going forward. There's been um, a lot of litigation under the National Environmental Policy Act requiring that environmental impact statements consider climate change. A lot of litigation uh, fighting proposed facilities, primarily proposed new coal-fired power plants. Much of that litigation has succeeded in, in stopping those plants or slowing them down. And there's another type of litigation that is getting a lot of attention these days, and that is litigation under uh, common law theories, particularly public nuisance. Four lawsuits were filed in, in federal courts, in each case uh, by either states or individual uh, or environmental organizations or property owners against industry uh, saying that emissions of greenhouse gases uh, worsening climate change and, and were, were causing damages. In all four of those cases, uh, there were uh, decisions by the district courts that dismissed the lawsuits on uh, primarily on political question grounds, on the, the idea that these kinds of disputes aren't really for the courts. It's up to Congress and the executive branch to figure out what are appropriate levels of greenhouse gas emissions. But the two cases that have been decided uh, on appeal both reversed and went the other way. One case is called uh, Comer versus Murphy Oil that's in Mississippi, brought by Mississippi property owners who say that Hurricane Katrina was worsened by climate change and that they were damaged as a result of that. So they're suing a bunch of oil and chemical and other companies for money damages. And the other case is called Connecticut versus American Electric Power, um, brought by some uh, states against power companies seeking an injunction that the power companies reduce their emissions. Both of those cases were, uh, uh, you know, first by the Fifth Circuit, then by the Second Circuit. Uh, the, the the plaintiffs won that round. Now, in the Second Circuit case, there are going to be uh, there's going to be an effort to ask the Supreme Court to look at it. And in the Fifth Circuit case, the one growing out of Hurricane Katrina, the the Fifth Circuit has granted en banc rehearing. So in, in, they're gonna, it's gonna, there's going to be another crack at that. So particularly if the if an en banc rehearing, the uh, panel is reversed, you're going to have a split in the circuits, making it more likely that uh, that the Supreme Court will take the case. So that'll be a, a very important uh, uh, set of litigation going on in the second half of 2010. Um, and I think there's a decent chance the Supreme Court will take the case or take, take the two cases and, uh, and will then know a lot. If, if the Supreme Court um, reverses, then that'll be, you know, it says you can't sue, that'll be the end of it. But if it says you can sue, that's going to be a huge uh, further area of, uh, of litigation, at least unless uh, Congress steps in and preempts it. That would be a very interesting development if we get to that point. There's a lot going on and uh, much more to come as we go through this year and get closer to the next conference of parties. Professor Gerard, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your thoughts and insights on these issues and for being a guest on this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Michael Gerard, Andrew Sabin Professor of Professional Practice and Director of the Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. Thank you for listening to the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Visit all our communities at www.lexisnexus.com forward slash community. 
The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions.